Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How's your day? Um, good. I ran eight kilometers today. So, what were you running from or to? Um, there's a kind of a near where I live. There's a historic um, castle, so I I run around the castle and uh, yeah, get some stress out. It's really nice. Yeah, historic castle um, of a different ethnicity than the castles that I grew up around, which is basically medieval times because I grew up in California and we don't actually have any historic castles. I guess they have like missions and stuff, but that's all I know. Well, usually you're the one who's got the dark background and like the floating head Zardoz effect, but I think that's me today. So I, I like it. I like this aesthetic. Um, the uh, the way that your background is set up, it, it's actually kind of uh, a little spooky and and kind of like the ring, uh, no no the grudge kind of kind of way is like this dark receding, very clean Japanese lines, and then darkness. Who knows what's going to come out of it? But that's why we're talking because we're going to look into the darkness and see what you've found. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, do, do you mind if we just dive in? So you, you want to no, no, by all means, okay. I, w- I would love to do that. Yeah. yeah. And I just kind of want to preface this by saying that, um, you know, this is going to be a little bit disturbing and, um, and also it's a little bit uh, difficult for me to even talk about. So at times I might, you know, pause or uh, hesitate um, when I'm speaking, but also that I think it's really important and it needs to be talked about. And so, you know, I thank you for, putting this issue out there, I feel that um, people haven't (laughs) quite believed me (laughs) about this. Um, So anyway, let's just jump into Mm. it. Um, I am going to be talking today about an investigation I did for Redux.info, which is a website that I started in January, end of January, with my friend Anna Slats. And um, we've been looking at some of the darker connections between kind of the gender identity movement and, you know, pornography or the sex industry and so on. Um, So this investigation that I did over the course of a couple of months had to do with a connection between the leading transgender health body, which is called WPATH. It stands for the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Uh, They influence policies and guidelines uh, regarding medical protocols um, internationally, um, as well as in the U.S., of course, where they're based. And they have been involved for uh, at least about two decades, perhaps two decades, over a decade, with a, a community of men who have been producing written child pornography uh, specifically on the theme of castration, but there's also um, torture, um, bondage, BDSM, snuff, um, 
and rape as well. And uh, so when I say that they have been involved together, I mean, they have been working together in a professional capacity. So these, okay, it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. But let, let me just explain that the, so WPATH publishes what's called the standards of care. These are the documents that advise clinics and hospitals on how to treat, you know, transgender health. And um, in December, they released an update to the standards of care, which would be the update number eight. So it's referred to as SOC, standards of care eight. And in that document, they included for the first time uh, mention of a eunuch gender identity. And so at first, some people were very surprised. I was not surprised. Um, they, they, a, a sense that, that people didn't see this coming. Uh, but in fact, this has been in the works for since 2009, at least, um, if not earlier. Uh, and so what that means is well, a eunuch is a man who has been castrated, and it does not mean a penectomy. It means the removal of testicles, okay? So typically the, the penis is still intact um, during during castration for what we're talking about. And um, it means that uh, this group of men who was writing stories about castrating children were directly lobbying WPATH to have this added to the standards of care document. All right, so I want to make sure that that's clear because okay. I know it's very confusing. So just uh, so I can process this uh, on my own simplistic terms. Um, so there, there's a web forum that shares er, er, erotica, uh, probably mm -hmm. predominantly written by men about mm -hmm. uh, fantasies uh, with regards to childhood um, mm -hmm. uh, castration and bondage and uh, mm -hmm. a bunch of erotica in them. And the men who are publishing this and are involved in this creative endeavor, if we can call it that, are you found links that those same people are lobbying the uh, WPATH uh, to add what they conceive of, what some would consider a fetish as an identity. Yes, through that's the, exactly through right. This gender, somehow gender comes into this. Right, right. Okay. As a form of a gender identity. Okay. Um, right. So let me try and start from the beginning. So this website is called the Eunuch Archive, and it hosts, like I said, thousands of stories, nearly 10,000 stories uh, written in, in this nature. And it was started sometime around 1998, although the exact origin date is not so black and white because they were actually operating on Usenet prior to this. And then after Usenet, they migrated to uh, BME, which is body modification easing. So they were being hosted in the 90s on BME, which is a Canadian uh, site that, that featured um, pornography, BDSM pornography, as well as genital mutilation pornography, um, usually self-mutilated um, and, you know, piercings and things like this as well. But actually, it was a bit extreme. And um, so they were being hosted on BME, and then they got their own site somewhere around 1998. And now, uh, at least one of the men who has been invited to WBATH conferences to speak about Unix he himself was uh, on the Usenet 
forum back in 96, um, quite a while, decades, we're talking decades of, mm. of working with this site. And anyway, the Eunuch archives, they gather these stories, collect these stories and invite people to submit their own. So they're user-based and hosted. And there's about 4,000 out of the total 10,000, about 4,000, which are specifically tagged as minor. And this is the most pop, one of the most popular, it's like the top three categories uh, on that site. Okay. Now, the man who was there at the beginning, Dr. Christopher Willett, he and two other academics named Tom Johnson and Richard Wassersug were uh, working to take surveys from the site members and then to have them published in academic journals. Well, specifically, Tom Johnson was spearheading this. And uh, he was able to get the opinions and views of these men in the forum um, published in several, uh, several academic um, journals. And one of those was uh, released by WPATH. Um, so then these three men, were invited to a WPATH conference beginning in 2009 in Oslo. This conference is where the decision was made to change uh, gender identity from a disorder uh, to downgrade it to gender dysphoria. And when I say downgrade, I mean depathologize in order to streamline uh, certain medical procedures. Uh, they were in attendance for that decision um, as well. Uh, Tom Johnson has had a hand in lobbying the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, he was involved in editing the DSM-5, uh, if I'm to believe what he says, because he's not actually mentioned in the DSM-5, uh, but he says that he was personally invited to, to contribute. And he was also personally invited to the WPATH conference by the former president, Eli Coleman. Mm -hmm. I, I know that's... J j quick question. If they depathologize it, then they no longer have access to insurance, correct? I mean, isn't the whole DSM-5 built to get people uh, insurance, to, to convince the insurance companies that these are conditions that need to be uh, covered under medical insurance? But if they depathologize, they're, they're going to miss out on... Well, look, I don't, I don't, I don't actually know too much about that insurance right. angle. Uh, I'm focusing more on the fact that it would allow kind of a streamlining, um, a removal of gatekeeping, if you okay. can call it that. Okay. So, so instead of say counseling or therapy, um, you would then be able to access medications or surgeries okay. more easily. Okay. Right. All right. Okay. Yeah. So I, it just seems like they're walking a fine line between keeping it something that can be covered by the medical industry because it needs medicalized uh, help on some level. But I guess they're trying to remove the uh, the the therapeutic side or the, the mm -hmm. mental psychological side in order to focus or streamline the physical reconstruction right. or deconstruction of right. specifically the male. There's no such thing as a female eunuch, I guess. No, no. I wonder not. if that's a category um, yet. Well, you know, interestingly, I mentioned the DSM-5. Well, um, in the DSM-4, previously, there was a condition uh, under gender identity disorder that was called scoptic syndrome. Okay. And maybe you've heard of this before, but um, this 
This term was coined by John Money, um, a sexologist who coined the term gender identity. Um, Skoptic syndrome was used to describe a fetishistic preoccupation with genital ablation and genital mutilation. Okay. And this term came from a Russian cult that was performing castrations and double mastectomies on women. And this cult was called the Skopsy. And this cult operated for over about 200 years. Um, and at, it, at its height, it had about 100,000 members. Um, and this religious cult, you know, the, the men um, would get castrated and even sometimes the full penectomy. I mean, just <laughs> horrific, horrific kinds of surgeries and things. And then, you know, the women would have their breasts removed. Um, and there's, you know, I could just talk about the parallels between that and the gender identity movement. Um, could, could we fill that out a little bit? Do you, do you know a little bit of the history of this uh, cult and 100,000 yeah. members, you said? So it, it kind of was a big deal then. I know yeah, Russia's it was kind of but... a big deal, but it was it was also they were persecuted by the Orthodox Church, um, even though they themselves were Christian. Um, they were persecuted, so they kind of would flee to the edges of town. You know, they um, and but the interesting thing about them is that they had this um, appearance of virtue, so that they were trusted by by many people. Um, and so they they would have children come in to the cult as apprentices and then castrate the children. Um, they would invite in uh, convicts, escaped convicts, and change their identity, um, change their documents. Um, but specifically, you know, since they couldn't really reproduce, right, you're, you're doing a full penectomy and castration, uh, the men were rendered infertile, so they couldn't reproduce. So how do they boost their numbers was to target children and to bring children in. Hmm. Um, do they yeah. run so, like orphanages or something like that? Kind of like dress it up? Apprentice, as a... Apprenticeships okay. well, is what they would do. What were they teaching? Like metallurgy and then castration? I, there has to be some sort of skill that they're teaching the kid. I would I would assume so. I have a, I have a book on this and it doesn't really mention that um a lot of the documents had been destroyed oh, um yeah. on their because uh, they were being persecuted by the government um so some things are not totally clear yeah. but we do know that that's how they were able to um kind of increase their numbers through conversion but also through yeah. targeting children as well now the castration is uh an ancient th i mean we do it to horses uh, the, the i guess the, the not the science but the medical technique has been pretty much figured out for a few centuries or millennia by now but mastectomy is a totally other different project. I wonder the survival rate of the women who would undergo this incredibly invasive. I mean, that's a lot of open yeah. wound. And, yeah. he, and, you know, yeah, then they did it in, in really primitive ways too. So, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I'm not really sure. Like I said, there's yeah. not a whole lot of doc documents that are still available. Okay. Um, Regard, especially, especially regarding statistics. But I did just want to mention that because of the overlap, yeah. you know, the parallel okay. between what we can see going on now. Yeah. And so the reason I actually brought that up in the first place was because that term scoptic syndrome was in the DSM-4 and um, has been removed. It was It's not in the DSM-5 now. And uh, Johnson claims to have had a hand in editing the DSM-5. 
Um, but what did happen as well is that the term gender dysphoria in children was added to the DSM-5. So at the same time that you have, uh, let me let me kind of spell this out. So the same time you have a man who was running a eunuch fantasy pornography site, um, specifically pornography writing about genital mutilation, you have the term for that condition removed, and then you have gender dysphoria in children that was added. Now, I cannot do anything more than speculate on the correlation there, um, but it was striking to me to notice that. Mm-hmm. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I hadn't, this is, there's a lot to process here. Um, Sure, sure. The, so, I can't get my head quite around eunuch as a gender identity or a gendered identity do you, do you understand why they're using the term gender identity and then applying it to eunuch i mean does the eunuch have anything to do with the concept of gender so in, in internal I mean, sense of my well i mean the, there has been some attempt made already to to normalize eunuchdom within the gender literature. Anyway, because they're referring to people like the um, Hijra in India as a third gender or as transgender now, um, which to me is, is uh, there's a lot you can say about that, right? Mm. I mean, first of all, that you're extending the Western idea onto another culture in the first place. But second of all, the Hijra have been known to abduct children and to traffic them into sex and castrate them. And so, I mean, really, is that what you really want to be associating with? Hmm. But like you said, the history of castration, it goes back thousands of years, at least 4,000 years that we know of. And it's considered to be one of the first serious forms of body modification because of the way that it so drastically can alter a man's body. Um, So when we think of it in terms of body modification, I think it really helps to sort of imagine things that way, because it seems like, you know, they were on prior to this, the eunuch archives was on a body modification fetish forum being hosted there. And then now being so it's almost as as if we're seeing a progression of Mm. something that kind of started with this fetishization of altering the body in some way and then having that pushed into the mainstream as as some sort of treatment um and yeah you know i just want to be really specific and clear that these stories they're quite uh quite graphic. Um, and some of them involve chemical castration as well. There's discussions of Lupron um, in, in the Usenet forum. Um, one of the stories is titled Confessions of a Pedophile. Um, there was actually a convicted pedophile in the Usenet forum who was talking about, you know, Lupron and chemical castration and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were stories about... Um, about children who were like frozen in puberty, uh, stunted in, and their puberty halted, then being sex trafficked and, and then being, in some cases, raped by doctors that were in this forum. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's a little <laughs> difficult to 
uh, to talk about, but I just think it's it's really serious. You know, I had to look at these stories f to be able to write about it and to be able to talk about it. So I feel that something needs to be done here properly. Um, the stories that they've written are legal in the U.S. because written pornography of this nature is is legal in the U.S. even though it involves minors. Though on their site they specifically warn that it might be illegal in your jurisdiction, so they are aware of what they're doing. Mm. And um, after I published those two articles, I received a quite angry email from uh, Dr. Tom Johnson, who was basically, it was an accident. He meant to send it to the university, but it got forwarded on to, to us. What, what, he, and, uh, he sent what, where? So we had reached out to him for comment before publishing the article, and he yeah. uh, in turn responded with this email that, you know, he basically confessed in, in, in no uncertain terms. He, he, he was defending what they were doing with the stories, but from his perspective, and this is a common defense that I hear a lot, which is that, oh, these stories are actually about what I would have wanted to happen to me when I was a child. But I just, I just don't believe that. <laughs> I just don't because hmm. there's things in there that are just so graphic and violent that no child would ever, hmm. it, it's inconceivable, you know. Um, but he, he responded by trying to discredit me. You know, because I'm not an academic, um, I'm not, <laughs> but I don't feel like that's that's an issue mm -hmm. in this. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. And he also lectures on expanding the transgender umbrella as well in his own time. So okay, so his he was doing research associated to the site, or he was producing content for that site. What, what's his relation? So he has been a member since 2001 um, on all of their uh, avatars. It says their membership date yeah. of joining. It also says how many posts they've made. So he had made over nearly 9,000 posts. Um, um, like stories or comments? Just all together. It's all together okay. taken. I don't actually, the, the authors of the stories, there's not really a good way of knowing who writes what to be honest hmm. um but but he 20 years 20 years he's been in this you know so he's he's seeing what's going on and he's and he's collecting information from the people who are writing these stories mm -hmm. and then using that for academic research in order to promote this view hmm. basically that this is not harmful or this is um this should be normalized hmm. Which that's, you know, really where I find so much of this to be disturbing is that you have this group of anonymous, unknown people writing stories about raping children um, being outsourced for their opinions on changes they would like to see to to medical literature and even specifically, you know, how they want to be classified, which is just astounding, you know, hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, especially in today's uh, age where the academy is 
pretty much corrupted by activism. It's really difficult to tell the difference between purely academic research and activistic um, using data in order to change uh, specifically uh, for different reasons, uh, outcomes on a medical level. So it's, it's really murky right now. It's really hard to tease apart. I can understand in theory an academic mindset when approaching this, trying to understand this community, trying to um, collect information on it and and study uh, this particular paraphilia. I understand that, but it's, again, with what we see with WPATH and the activi- the overall activist turn in academia, it's really difficult to see where it is not normalizing this or how, how do we know that it's not trying to normalize or, or center this as a valid identity that needs to be respected in, in law and medicine. Um, right. All the way, the extreme right. example is that you can't discriminate against a pedophile if you're running a preschool. You can't not hire a pedophile because they're a protected class. So that's that's the... The question is hard. Right. To, it's hard to know that. It's hard to reverse engineer, like, why somebody is doing this research. Well, you know, and I think, obviously, this research does need to be done, um, but it always should be within the victim-focused framework mm-hmm. rather than taking the framework of the sex offender as the sympathetic party. And mm-hmm. I say that because these stories are graphically pedophilic. So, um <laughs> There, Benjamin, there was a story in there that was called Age of Consent, and it was like about a world where the age of consent had been lowered to 12, and it said, um, and children can get genital mods without parental consent. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, right. Studying is different than advocating for, you know, and essentially what was happening here is some academics decided they would be the voice for these people and to get through what they wanted. And they were taken seriously by WPATH, which is disturbing. Okay. Um, Well, the the trend of WPATH is normalization of the permanent body modification according to this thing called gender identity or the mm-hmm. depathologizing of somebody's discomfort with their own body. So it's the ethical qualms are wide open here. You've covered that and I've covered that. Um, at the same time, what have you learned about the psychology of body modification, specifically about the, the eunuch? Is there uh, like a, a drive for innocence? I know there's the male sexuality thing, which kind of corrupts the whole thing. But like, what's the driving force? Have you, have you kind of said, it sounds like you really dove deep into this. So I know you're not an academic, but I would like your perspective on on how you, you think these people operate and or these people, how, how this paraphilia operates. What's it about? What's the charge or the value of it? Um, corrupting innocence, uh, really not hmm. not preserving it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's sadomasochistic. There's a huge vein through um, gender identity that I see that is sadomasochistic in nature. And I would even pair the surgeries uh, Hmm. with that. I mean, actually, they were uploading um, surgical videos to this site as pornography. So MTF surgeries were were being shared as pornography, right? Um, 
So there's this sadomasochistic element, which is basically paraphilias have a tendency to escalate anyway. And for those who don't know, paraphilia basically means any kind of sexuality that is driven towards an object or towards uh, the mm, dehumanization, uh, basically. So sadomasochism, you know, sadism being the drive to cause pain in a sexual way, and then masochism as the opposite side of that. Um, hmm. So so I see this thread, you know, of, of let's say the masochist, let's take masochism, right? So the male masochist who, who wishes to lower himself in, in this status um, was studied by a man named Dr. Baumeister, and he has a book called Masochism and the Flight from Self. And so he kind of describes masochism as a tendency to, to want to avoid conscious thought or selfhood and to remove that selfhood and replace it with a sort of fabricated or protective identity. Um, so within the sexual aspect of masochism is the desire to implement a false identity for one's own protection. Hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I see, I see within the psychology of, of the men, the stories that I was looking at, I see strong currents of both the Sado aspect and the masochistic aspect. Um, certainly the sadistic aspect really jumps out at one because um, the, 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 the care that was put into crafting long descriptions of harming yeah. others yeah. Um, requires a certain mindset that wouldn't occur to, I would say, healthy people, <laughs> to be quite honest. Unless um, they're the Marquis de Sade and they have a very elaborate uh, philosophical backing for their uh, perverse um, desire for power. That's a joke. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, men and women are different. I mean, that, that's probably a view that we both share. I don't know to what extent uh, we understand those differences. Uh, we probably have different views on that. But there's something that's drawing out to me between um, the desire for body, body modification, the, the desire to be a eunuch, and anorexia and bulimia, where anorexia and bulimia are more uh, female. I don't know to what extent males are uh, afflicted by that. Um, but that seems, it seems kind of similar in a, in a, in a way, but just without, I don't think that there's a sexual component to anorexia and bulimia, but maybe there is, I don't know. Um, what do you think about that correlation between, um, a woman's desire for self-harm, especially in 1415, she's depressed, the cutting and the stuff like that. And then the male, uh, drive towards self-harm, which has more of a, sexual components specifically in what we're talking about now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss, plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right. So actually the masochistic element has been so strongly connected to the female throughout the history of sexology that there was almost a sense that there, there, 
what was being described was that women enjoy being hurt and women enjoy suffering. Um, but you know, that was based on, so Havelock Ellis was a, a sexologist who, who would take kind of, um, ethnological research, let's say, for example, oh, in Russia. So there's a, there's a proverb in Russia that says, you know, uh, if you beat a woman, she will love you forever or something like this. And he would take things like this and say, oh, aha, well, that means women inherently uh, desire to, to be harmed or degraded. Hmm. And so when you have um, that established as the, as the feminine, then the the desire to harm becomes associated with the feminine. And so men who wish to take on the feminine role uh, would engage in, let's say, the, the masochistic side of sexuality as a form of uh, incorporating the feminine, so mm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but but um, I don't know if I answered your correct question correctly. <laughs> no, I can, I can see the, uh, the symbolic parallels when uh, culture assumes that the woman is uh, to be degraded or finds value in pain, let's say, um, than the male oh, who I did wants wanna, that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I did want to mention before I forgot about the castration part, right? So I have, I have really been struggling to understand why it is that um, in sexology – beginning with John Money, the chemical castration has been pioneered. John Money pioneered chemical castration as a treatment for for pedophiles. Um, And it has been consistently pushed since um, as a treatment. So chemical castration would refer to initially Depo-Provera or estrogen being given to men um, in order to in theory, reduce their sex drive and to prevent them from offending. Okay. So I've been really confused why it is that those same drugs, which were initially being given to pedophiles are now being given to children in the the form of puberty blockers and how we got here and what happened in between. So how did we go from sexologists saying I'm treating pedophiles to then giving those drugs to children and then, you know, when I look at the eunuch archives, there's a clear fetish, mm. fetishization of chemically castrating children. So what happened in the interim, you know, so this was started in 1996, the Dutch protocol in Amsterdam. Um, I th- believe it was at the University of Amsterdam. So this man named Dr. Louis Gorin, I think it said, but I don't mm. speak the language, mm. um, but he, he uh, pioneered the puberty blocker treatment for children. As a, as, a, as a gender dysphoria for children. Um, and so that was 96. Um, and now this is just speculation. Okay, so hear me out. I, I, uh, I discovered this brilliant piece of journalism from the year 2000. Uh, the man's name escapes me just now, but he, he won some awards. And uh, it was about the migration of the pedophile community in England into Amsterdam. So after, so PI, the pedophile information exchange in in England that was operating in the 80s, um, after they became stigmatized, the the group disbanded, uh, several members uh, moved over into Amsterdam and began lobbying for the lowering of the age of consent in Amsterdam and were nearly successful as as early as 1990. that was being discussed. And so, you know, as I'm looking and trying to figure out what's going on, I, I, I 
see all these other pieces going on too. And I can't understand how they might be related to each other if I'm blowing it out of proportion, if I'm looking for things that aren't there. But then I see the eunuch archives and then I just feel like the sinking feeling um, hmm. that, you know, and there's a sense in which, you know, I don't want to be right or, you know, <laughs> that you, you don't think that this is happening. And even, even when I talk about this, I get the feeling that sometimes people don't really truly uh, uh, believe the investigation I did into the eunuch archives, and I can't get anyone to cover it, really, hmm. um, to pick it up in any mainstream capacity, even though I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah. There's a semi-viral video. I can't remember the uh, philosopher's name, but there's a, I think he's down in Oregon. He does a queer theory Jeopardy, where he goes through... Um, uh, he plays a game of Jeopardy about queer theory, and it turns out that all of the lead, leading theorists in queer theory, which is basically the uh, infrastructure of the transgender movement that's become popular with the pronouns and stuff, all of them Robert were- Robert Jensen, yeah. Robert Jensen. They were all mm -hmm. advocating for the lowering of the age of consent. Yes. And yeah. so these ideas, whether or not they were intentionally designed to lower the age of consent, they are lowering the age of consent insofar as they are now- leading the charge of introducing kids to gender identity, introducing this view of the body as something um, that is inherently sexualized. There's more and more sexualization of children within the United States education system and probably elsewhere. And it's all, uh, it's all a piece. So whether or not it's intentionally done to give uh, pedophiles access to children, it is effectively doing that by, by causing uh, adult child sexual interaction um, in, in the professional environment of the school or what should be a professional environment of the school. So it, it's of a piece. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that uh, you could take the view of uh, trying to prosecute any given person that's doing this, which is one thing. But if you look at it as a cultural movement that has an enormous amount of power right now, it's the most powerful lobby I mean, they have an entire month and it seems like every weekend they have another uh, march um, that they're using the rainbow flag that's being more and more corrupted to include explicitly body modification. I was just at uh, uh, nearby uh, grade school and I saw this book about activism and it was all these uh, transgender flags and then it had a whole page. It's for a kid's book celebrating jazz jazz jensen as somebody who just wants to be themselves and then you look at the footage of jazz jensen going through this medical procedure of being jazz jazz jennings jazz yeah jennings yeah yeah sorry about yeah. that um uh but you know you, uh, you look at the footage of like these cameras stuffed into this kid's crotch the whole time it's like it's basically this weird family pornography show in a way well yeah and then marcy bowers the surgeon joked that jazz could be a porn star when he was photographing jazz's generals and i believe 17 at the time poor thing you could be a porn star for all the photos we've taken <laughs> john i'm so sorry i did not say we that. have to just keep talking around here or otherwise we don't get through the labial structures look convincing now that you've seen it do you feel good feel good you shared that and that that little clip. I, I don't think I'll include it, but um, uh, you shared that. And the look on the faces of every adult in the room was like they all knew that they had completely destroyed this child. And this child had no idea. Jazz, Jazz Jennings was just 
doing the happy face, like, oh, okay, maybe I'll just have a ruined suture for the rest of my life. Da, 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 da. So it uh, that show, it's just, it's odd that that show's documenting this uh, destruction of an individual and then kids' books are singing this individual's praise. Like it's this this pure movement of just be yourself, be your inner self. And uh, mm-hmm. you, nobody's, uh, it, it's just I mean, odd. how is yeah. he ever going to get out of it, you know? Yeah, like the, the immense amount of pressure, even if, if Jazz wanted out, how, <laughs> you know? Um, <sighs> There's the, the tr- one. Can I way talk out, about? Yeah. Oh, sorry. No. Sorry. No. Can I can I talk about the trans flag for a second? Yeah. Because I don't I don't know if you saw the dive I did into the creator of the trans flag or not. But no. Um, okay. So I read his memoir. <laughs> oh. Not recommended reading. Uh, it's called More Than Just a Flag, and it's so this man. His real name is Robert Hogue, and he goes by Monica Helms. He designed the trans flag in 1999. He is um, a Navy Navy veteran. I always end up saying Army when I mean Navy, but he worked on some submarines. And uh, he... He started engaging in uh, fetishistic uh, cross-dressing um, around like the 70s, which sort of began to escalate. Um, in one story in the memoir, he describes um, stealing a woman's underwear um, in order to to pleasure himself in. And um, he was married and uh, his wife... Well, they eventually divorced as he got deeper and deeper into this. He started participating in what's called the Tri-S Society. Uh, The Tri-S means the three S's, so uh, the Society for the Second Self, which was a fetishistic organization in the U.S. that that was spreading across the United States at this time in the 70s. And he was involved in that. And what they would do is they would gather on holiday retreats together. They would say holiday in femme, where they would pay a lot of money to attend these conferences and sometimes their wives would also join in. Um, one of their goals was to get wives to to accept this and to be on board with it and to be supportive of it. Um, but basically they would spend, you know, thousands of dollars for the hotels, thousands for the um, clothing, the makeup, the accessories. And so he was spending some of his family finances for, for these kinds of trips that he was doing. Well, what's the Society um, for the Second Self? Is this a cross-dressing society? Soci- yeah, the Society for the Second Self, or TRISIG, it's also called. They fashioned themselves after women's sororities at universities. So they would give themselves like sorority names. And um, it was started by a man, co-started by a man named Virginia Prince. And he there's just you could just do a whole episode on on prince alone um because there's just so much to say about him but he basically was taking the uh tactics of the lgb movement at the time and very deliberately so saying that we need to copy them and to take their tactics but also excluded them totally from from their group as well anyway um trans flag guy so he he was involved in this and he uh, also went on to write some some short stories, a book of short stories called Tales from a Two-Gender Mind, uh, which contains kind of themes of, you know, forced feminization erotica, uh, body swapping, and age regression. And one of his stories is about marrying a little girl who doesn't age um, because she's a witch, apparently, but, you know, whatever. And she doesn't age. And then they have a daughter together that also doesn't age. And it's just very... Um, weird 
uh, and, and a bit creepy to think about, you know. So this is this is the man who designed the trans flag that is being flown in schools. Uh, in some cases, I've seen it flown at a preschool and is basically a man who is, you know, stealing women's underwear. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the again, it, it's really difficult. You're bringing up so much different material and, and it's really difficult to completely map the entire story. Um, but you see this through line, you see this, uh, desire to, uh, overcome the body, overcome death in a way. And, and yet people do call it a death cult in different ways. There is this embracing of the dying of the old self and the rebirth of the new and the never aging and the puberty blockers explicitly is, is, uh, on one level, it's human beings trying to defeat nature in a, in a way. Um, and, and then trying to see it from the level of, uh, sexuality, uh, driven, and then also trying to see it from, uh, the perspective of just hubris, just basic hubris is, is another thing. So how did you get down this rabbit hole, um, so to speak, How, what, what set you on the path to, to contending with this? Cause you, you've de dedicated a lot of time and you've sunk a lot of yourself into this. What started this and, and what are you uh, going toward? Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, I started to look into the pornography aspect or what I see as the connection between gender identity and pornography um, around 2019. And I did that because I had discovered something called sissy hypno um, or sissy pornography. And I was really kind of shocked at how prevalent this was when you know where to look for it and its connections to a transgender identity. People argue with me about this, but I mean, it's there. It's, it's people will tell me specifically, no, this is something different. Um, but I've seen the videos where they're even eroticizing, you know, taking estrogen. Um, so it's not like there is any clear cut boxes that are happening. There's a, there's a continuum and there's the, the, sissy pornography which starts with the whole belief that wearing certain women's clothing or performing certain sexual acts makes one a woman and i got down that rabbit hole and just thought um that there's a lot more going on here than i realized and i think that it wasn't being talked about or explored um this particular aspect within pornography seems to be taboo to discuss uh, specifically how it may impact someone's identity or how one sees oneself which we argue about other forms of media having this power why is pornography an exception hmm. and i wondered you know what impact is this actually having 
on people's sense of selfhood and identity. And then you see stories of, for example, girls, detransitioners, you know, who, who come out and then they say, well, I was looking at certain types of pornography specifically. There's like an anime genre called yaoi or yaoi, which is the type that, that I've seen referenced again and again, like very feminine boys. Um, and then wanting to, wanting to become a boy. Um, but the flip side of that, you know, among men as well, specifically, I was interested in, in seeing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, because people weren't really talking about it, you know, I, and I feel that there's so many aspects to this whole thing, right? You know, you've certainly you've had so many different people on your show talk about this. People will talk about the surgeries, the medications, or the money behind it, or the lobbying, or what's going on in schools. But this issue, I didn't really see a lot of people, you know, coming out to combat, you know, with new new eyes about what's going on. It had been talked about previously by some some women in the past. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of since we've got streaming pornography now, what does that mean for our selfhood or how the self is perceived? Is there a possibility that pornography can actually um, spread paraphilias? Is there a social contagion element involved in paraphilias as well? I mean, other than just the gender identity paraphilia, so, or sorry, not paraphilia, but gender identity, social contagion. Hmm. So, so I, those are the questions I've been looking to kind of answer, not answer, but um, look for, for, through lines or for to understand what's going on basically mm-hmm. because i really feel like behind closed doors pornography is in some ways in a lot of ways driving some of these things hmm. i feel mm-hmm. and so uh you and anna slats began redux what is the mission of redux and why do you call it redux maybe you can explain that uh, Redux kind of means like to do over or to do again. Okay. Yeah. Um, we liked the two X's <laughs> to be quite <laughs> oh, honest. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a super deep, uh, thing. We just liked the way it sounded and the way it looked and mm. we thought, oh yeah, well it means to do over. So maybe it's like we're doing feminism over or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it wasn't any kind of profound <laughs> thing um but we started it at the end of january and so now it's been about a little less than eight months now yeah and you know we've written hundreds of articles in that time um and really focusing on kinds of the stories that like i said like most people won't touch or are not you know invested in looking more deeply into (laughs) so that's the role that we hope to fill which is you know specifically the the connections between safeguarding so child safeguarding and women's safeguarding um and how well basically just to shine a light on things it's not as though we're we're offering some kinds of solutions here we're saying look at what's happening as a result of this insane belief system you know you have you have uh, one of the stories was a pedophile who who was suing the state because he wasn't being allowed to change his name i believe and he said it was like a human rights violation for him not to be able to change his name um you know I, i've written about a, a killer who was transferred into the new jersey prison who he he killed a woman and drank her blood 
And then he was found wearing her clothing and had placed his own photo over hers on her driver's license. And he was transferred into the New Jersey prison. Um, if you look at that story, there's, it's even kind of worse than that, to be quite honest. And he recently married a woman in, in prison and they're, they're living together in the prison now. Uh, so He was transferred into the women's prison. prison yeah. And- Sorry. Yeah, he was identifying as, as transgender, of course. Okay. So so he was he was transferred into the women's prison. But, okay. you know, you just see you. I mean, those of us who are familiar with it, I understand that some people are not really following this that closely. Those of us who are familiar will see these these insane things that are happening as a result of this really untenable belief system that's totally divorced from reality Hmm. and then you know the way that that impacts women's material reality Mm -hmm. specifically women and children is really what we're focusing on Mm -hmm. with redux so and um it's uh we started the conversation talking about like uh the eunuch art archive which is a bunch of uh, erotic uh fantasies and it's hard to tell those fantasies apart from the actual news, the stuff that you uncover about like a man drinking a woman's blood and then getting transferred into a prison and marrying a woman there. I mean, that sounds just like something that was taken out of a, a total fantasy land. Like, like yeah, where, where's yeah. the, where's the difference there? Yeah. It's not. It's like, it's, Other than it's condoned yeah. by society. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that is really the frightening thing, too, I think, about these stories, just to bring it back. So the fact that these stories are sexualizing what's actually happening Mm -hmm. to children, the chemical cast. I mean, we really need to start saying it like it is. It is chemical castration of children. Um, And anyone who pretends like that's not the case is highly suspicious in my book because it has been known that was its use. That has been its use for decades. The same drugs, GnRH agonists. That was they're all the same drugs: the puberty blockers and the chemical castration. Mm. So, we really need to start um, seriously examining what is going on here in, in in the medical aspect and the overlap between the the fetishism and the pornography yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, it uh, I got into a really odd internet beef a couple of days ago. Uh, this woman, I can't remember her name. Apparently, she's a big deal and she runs a podcast or something like that. She went toe-to-toe with Matt Walsh about uh, mastectomies basically just being the same thing as a boob job and that it's their body, their choice kind of thing. And I kind of, uh, I didn't get triggered. I just thought it was weird. So I just said, you know, this is like child sacrifice this is the same thing as child sacrifice like this is basically my position and then i she accused me of being uh, too emotional to talk about this issue with her right so it's it's interesting that the games that people will play where um yeah, this is it's either should be just normalized a child should be able to elect to be in the body that they want to be in and that's a through line this gets into really difficult political territory between the liberal idea that everybody can have self-determinism with their body and that it's their body, it's their choice. If they know what's right for them, they should be given uh, freedom to, to do that, um, which is a very strong idea that runs through a lot of our society and a lot of our freedoms are, are based on that. When it comes to children, how do we draw that line and how do we take a firm stance? Um, because at some point we have to limit 
our freedoms and we're kind of allergic to that uh, in, in a way. And it, it's just kind of a, we've gotten our, we painted ourselves into a difficult corner where a lot of these ideas can take root because we become so tolerant and uh, so open. And, and it's really hard to, to draw back on that, especially when you have rhetoric about any sort of limit on anybody's freedom is basically akin to fascism. It, we're, we're just in a really difficult period where there's a lot of, um, it's really difficult to get back um, to to sanity once once we've gone uh, so far and, and libertinism uh, is kind of and hedonism's mm-hmm. kind of taken over. So I, I I wonder we should wrap up now, but I'm just wondering um, where you guys are headed forward and and what you're going to be doing with Redux and uh, other things uh, that you guys have on the well, horizon. Just- kind of little comment on what you were saying there is that I do wonder to what extent social media is causing people to be unable to think critically. Um, hmm. I, I just wonder if there's a certain kind of death of critical thought happening with the emergence of this tribalism of, you know, trying to score points uh, over other people, kind of gamifying, arguing with people. It's, mm. it's kind of disturbing to watch. But mm. um, where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> well, uh, we're hoping to expand our team. Um, we're, you know, looking for writers. Uh, we're always open for tips or ideas as well. Um, we just launched some merch recently, mm-hmm. so a couple of T-shirts, and we're going to keep working on that. And you guys aren't well, selling so... binders, right? That's not part of your merch <laughs> department. <laughs> Sorry, I had to bring that up. There, there are rock bands that are selling binders now. Really? I'll have to find the rock band, but there is a rock band that's selling binders as a part of their merch. God. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's something of, of uh, how do I say this? I don't mean this. If it, you still have the capacity to be shocked, and it seems like you yeah. would have lost that capacity, but it seems like you've been able to maintain that uh, ability. Oh, maybe that's why I keep going further is because if I felt dead inside, I don't think I would keep doing it. It's such a heavy, heavy work that you're involved in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel that, you know, it's, um, I, I understand why people don't sometimes want to read or share something. I understand that. Um, but but you know, I and you know, I I feel like there are people who are being hurt by this really terribly, and so if I'm able to do it, then then I feel a, a, a responsibility to to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you guys gotten written up on a transgender map or transgen? Yeah, transgender map. I have a article on there. She made a. Andrea James, are they? Uh, oh, yeah, they made yeah. a, a beach town. Andrea, ja- Andrea James was, you know, tweeting very supportively about the eunuch oh. identity recently. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I can send it to you, or you can check it out. But okay. yeah, yeah. The, Interesting. The huh? eunuch is a—it's a new wave. Uh, I guess that's the new frontier. Then we're just gonna have. Uh... Well, he, 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 she, he, whatever. Um, <laughs> tweeted like a map that had all of these like reddit connections of like castration fetish groups on reddit and uh, i just thought it was interesting like why are you telling on yourself like this but um so it was positive it was positive okay yeah yeah 
Um, no, we, I, I don't know. I haven't checked if, if we've gotten written up on there, but I have gotten a scathing review from the leader of a pro pedophile German organization. Hmm. So the, the pedos don't like you. They don't like, they really don't like Anna. They're starting to not like me. Okay. That, you're supposed to feel bad about that? <laughs> right. I mean... Well, they're not a protected identity yet. Um, but it seems to be the course. Um, the, the escalation just seems to be the course that they'll be a protected class and you can't criticize them because they'll be the most marginalized group in the history of man. you have to wonder, too, why are they getting so bold now? <laughs> Yeah. It's it's as if they see the writing on the wall in some ways. Yeah. Well, with the gender identity in schools and so on. It, what, what's to stop them from being bold? There's no mm -hmm. we we've uh, we've allowed for the erosion of of safeguarding of children. We've allowed for the erosion of safeguarding of women. We've allowed the erosion of the safeguarding of innocence, and therefore our humanity is up for grabs too. I mean, it's all of a piece. Mm -hmm. Genevieve Glock. Thank you for joining yeah. me. It's very late where you are. It's very early where I am. So we carved out a place to speak. It's great to have you on heavy content, but you are the lead editor. What are you called? Founder, lead editor of Redux.com. Co-founder. Co-founder. Yeah. And um, you are also on Twitter. I'll link uh, links in the description. Anything else that you'd like to plug or let people know about? Um. I think that's pretty much, you know, the Redux and the Redux Twitter. And then I do, uh, in my free time, I do a podcast called Women's Voices, which is just sort of discussions with uh, women, um, not always women. I talked with Donovan Cleckley about transgenderism and objectification, but that's just sort of a conversation-based podcast. Mm -hmm. So, Do you do lighter content over there? Just like, you know, talk about like, no, <laughs> no, you, you know, you don't have no. a crochet uh, thing. Is there any, oh. is there any light content that you produce? Like, I guess you run around castles when you want to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do. Keeps me sane. <laughs> I think, I hope. <laughs> well, thank you. I'll wrap up the recording now. So thanks for your time.